what you'll learn in the book is my son has four mentors, but there are other men who played significant roles in mentoring moments. There are about 14 of them, and one of them is greatness comes from the heart. And it's about how you show up for people. And so when my son, Max, was 14, he had a chance to meet Barack Obama about a month before he was elected into office for the first time. And so I'm gonna read you an excerpt that describes this remarkable intimate moment that gave Max a glimpse of what it means to be great. Coming up on the Janice Adams Show, Marianne Howland, author of the book, Warrior Rising, how four men helped a boy on his journey to manhood. Trying to make it real compared to what? First, the news. At a time when one in three Americans, more than two in three African Americans, are raised without a father, Marianne Howland wanted more for her son than a statistic. She wanted him to benefit from men who would relate to him in ways that she as a woman could not. For his transition from boyhood to manhood, she invited four men to mentor him. For his 13th birthday celebration, she created a rite of passage she calls a black mitzvah. Now, years later, her son has grown to be a thoughtful, mature young man. His mentors have become his collective dad. Their story has become a book, and the book is becoming a movement. You don't have to be a father to be a dad. And you don't have to be a boy or black to need and appreciate a black mitzvah. Our guest today on the Janice Adams Show, Mary Ann Howland, author of the book, Warrior Rising, How Four Men Helped a Boy on His Journey to Manhood. Who is Mary Ann Howland? And... How did you come to the moment in your life, not when you would write the book, but when you would write the chapter of your life that would become the book? So I am a business owner. I I own a company called Ibis Communications that I founded about uh, over 20 years ago. And it's a marketing and branding consultancy. And um, I am a single mom. And my son, before my son turned a year old and my son was born, I was only 26 weeks along. So he was quite early. He weighed 26 ounces when he was born. And he had um, several, as you can imagine, medical complications. In the very first 83 days of his life, he was in neonatal and um, came home with lots of instructions and and uh, it was a very stressful time and all of so meanwhile I'm running a business and I've got this beautiful child that just really needs his mom and and um, so we learned you know when he was maybe nine months old that he had cerebral palsy and then later learned that he was ADHD and, and lots of parents that are listening probably have, a, you know, have children with um, ADHD. That's not an uncommon diagnosis. And there's a scale. And I would say my son is probably at a 10, you know, so he's quite, it has turned into a, a, a learning disability as well. 
Marianne, would you specifically spell out what ADHD is? Attention deficit hyperactive disorder. There's like 30% of Americans have it, but on a high end spectrum, um, it can be, it can cause challenges. So I am at this point, his, not only his mother, I'm his nurse, I'm his therapist, I'm his advocate, you know, in school, I am his best friend, his everything. And so the first 12 years of our life together was just so highly intensive. Now, fortunately, because I had my own business, I could create a schedule that that revolved around attending to his needs and making sure that, you know, he had everything that he needed to be a have a, you know, live as much of a joyful and normal life as possible. Oh, and, and let me just add, so, so because my son is a miracle, so his birthdays, and all my friends know this, his birthdays are a big celebration of the miracle that he is, and there's society page, big, you know, birthdays. I mean, you know, so we just really go all out. And, and so for his 13th birthday, uh, there was several things happened at that point. I'm looking at him and going, okay, um, you know, he's about to, you know, this is important years, he's teen years. And, um, you know, he's had all these women in his life and a strong mom in his life. And, you know, but he, his father was not involved. And so I realized that he really needed some guidance around what it is to do that alone. And so that, that that's when I began to think about this rite of passage concept. And, and it was introduced to me by another friend who I met many, many, many years ago, who talked about what she had done for her son's 13th birthday with this idea of giving him um, some mentors. She was also a single mom. So I did some research around the bar mitzvah because that's the only rite of passage that I was familiar with in, in, in American society. The only, I think the Native Americans do vision quests, but, and I, I don't quite know what that is. So, but the bar mitzvah, is you know it's familiar. I've never been to one, but I what I learned about it is that it's based on these three tenets of faith, community, and accountability. The Jewish rite of passage, the bar mitzvah, and the bat mitzvah for girls. Right. The Jewish rite of passage as children come of age at thirteen. Exactly. Took the the principles, faith, community, and accountability, and just customized. Um, a celebration and a mitzvah that that um, lasted for the six years. And that's when we decided that we needed to, my son and I, sit down and think about who were men in our lives that we wanted to step in in that role to help him instill those values. We didn't decide that it was going to be four. It's just that it just happened to be four. And so those four men include, one of them is my brother. Another one is a, a friend of mine who, and my, my brother, who's a, he's an engineer. He has a son, has one grown son. And then another one is a, uh, is a philanthropist and uh, who, who had uh, two older sons. And then another one is a fi- my financial planner um, who is raised by a single mom himself and has incredible uh, you know, story to tell about how he, you know, grew up in Memphis, didn't have much and watched his mother work hard and struggle all his life and made the commitment that he never wanted to see his mother struggle. And so he focused on, um, you know, having this, this, this 
career and, and understanding money. And now he's a self-made millionaire and a, and a wealth manager. And then the, the other mentor is a um, publisher, serial entrepreneur, um, um, uh, uh, an inventors on several patents and just a super guy who, who is still single, but has been like one of my best friends for about 20 years. So those are the four men who stepped in and said, yes. So they became sort of his collective dad, if you will, and participated in the celebration for his 13th birthday. You're talking about this idea of the black mitzvah based on the bar mitzvah and how you decided to do that in a conversation with your son. What was his contribution to that conversation? Hmm. Well, he didn't have a particular affinity for the idea or not. What, what he was focused on was when, when we talked about having four mentors, these, these, the relationships with four men, he was a little suspect at first because, because what, what, what that meant to him was he had enjoyed the freedom of manipulating his mom <laughs> for like, you know, a long time, 12 years, you know, approaching 13 years. And so suddenly the idea that there would be like these father figure type men who were going to um, be able to like, you know, pull them aside or, <laughs> you know, have a voice in, you know, the decision making process or, or that was how he was perceiving it. It was like, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean I have to be accountable to these men? Wait, wait, what do you mean? you know, they're going to be in my business, you know? So he, he, that there was a little resistance there, but at the same time, because he's a single child um, and didn't, doesn't have brothers and always bemoan that and let me know that over and over again, (laughs) (laughs) that the the idea of having relationships with men was, that was intriguing to him. So when we talked about who they might be, that that was an interesting conversation because you know I, I you know as we were going through the list of men of who <laughs> mm-hmm. some of the people that he was suggesting were people that he just thought were fun, even though they might be people who might be suspect <laughs> in terms of you know their decision making process or you know just people who are clowning <laughs> or you know not not you know not really about nothing but that he liked them because they were fun those guys right but let me ask you this then. One of the things that I'm hearing, especially as you just said, the the fun part of, you know, manipulating his mom, um, which probably wasn't always fun at the time. But what I love about it is that your miracle child, you're also saying, is a kid. He's a normal kid. Yep. Which is a great part of this story. So who was Max as a person at that point? And what did he want? Well, that's when bullying had become a, a, a huge factor in his life and in the whole atmosphere of, of our family life because it had gotten so bad that he had even talked about killing himself. He was cutting. It was that bad. 
he had this one side to him that he's quite genius, very creative and very brilliant. And, and in the right environment, he just, his son shone bright. And then there was this other side that, that would just get lost. So what was, he would come home from school and um, I, I, I could see it in his face and I would ask him what happened or, or how you feel. And he would just say, I, you won't understand. I, you know, you won't understand. And I, and I, and after hearing that, about 10 times the, the, you won't understand, you, you know, and I just, I said to myself, you know what? I, I probably don't understand. And that was really, to be honest with you, Janice, probably was what really made me want to do this because I knew I was not equipped and I needed, and there needed to be some intervention beyond just me to help him through this. Now, I, I had the idea. You talk about who he was. My son is the most sensitive, beautiful person who loves people, totally, um, you know, the helper, the, the in-service to, the defender of women. And so to hear him so deflated and so um, disillusioned by the cruelty of others, not just students, but teachers, and 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 not and not just teachers, but even out in community, when and which is what you know uh, um, is is true for not only people with disabilities, but you know for us, you know that you people have perceptions of you, and so he would get dismissed or disrespected, or and so that began, you know, society began to have this impact on his ego, and he wasn't equipped to yet handle, you know, how do I survive and thrive when I'm not being respected, when I'm being, you know, looked at as different, so different that it's, it's become an obstacle. A person with the strength of character as a newborn to survive 83 days is the one who is targeted as a child to be humiliated and bullied. I, I just think that as a society, we have to take a moment and listen and hear that. You know? Yeah. What that child went through with the determination in his newborn mind to make it and your determination to help him achieve that is something that we have to really take a moment and think about what our society is and what it does, especially at this moment in time when we're recording this show, when America has taken to the streets, the world has taken to the streets for the systemic bullying that is society's brutality against people of color, but against other human beings, there's always an excuse. Um, and that was part of this week's Supreme Court decision as we take this. The decision to not be allowed to strip someone of their job, their livelihood, because they are transgender. And one of the objections to that decision was because it was rooted in the Civil Rights Code which also not only dealt with race, but with sex. One of the objections to that decision was about transgender. 
And it's as though there is this big rock called inhumanity to other people. And we should have been big enough to handle it. But instead, that rock was knocked down and turned into pebbles. And then we were all turned into Lilliputians so that there could still be a huge difference between the pebble now being huge and our being made very small. And then we're put in the position, instead of dealing with just one rock, we have to deal with all these pebbles. So your miracle little boy is dealing with the pebble of his physical condition. He's dealing with the pebble of race. He's dealing with the pebble of living in the United States. When you looked at yourself at night and he said, mom, you just wouldn't understand. What Mm. did you have to understand about you? Mm. Well, for my, you know, young man who was who who had been, and you say it so well, you know, he had gone through the 83 days. We went through his early years. He was just, I, he had locks. I gave, we, we, we got locks together and his locks, maybe at seven or eight, and they had grown really, really long. They were so long that they hung all the way down his back. And so, and he's, he's got a pretty face. So when, when he would walk everywhere we went in the world, everywhere in the world, people thought he was a girl. And so I remember one day after, you know, this had repeatedly, it had come up and I said to him, I said, Max, do you mind that people think you're a girl? And Max said to me, literally, he, he, he stood with his, put his shoulders back. He goes, I know who I am. I love my hair. And just, and this didn't skip a beat, moved on. And I, I was shocked because I'm like, how how does someone that young, you know, but this seems like eight, nine years old, how does someone that young have that kind of self-confidence? But that's who he was because I had raised him that way to just be who you are. And then to, you know, then, like I said, get through those years in school when suddenly people started tearing that down and, and just, you know, you know, dagger by dagger. And he just... Um, became this person who, and and it wasn't just that his disability, but my son also, um, his father is biracial. So my son is very light-skinned with, you know, really extra curly hair. So people would look at him and, and ask him, you know, this racial identity thing that we're preoccupied with. Like, what are you? And And kids at school would say, are you Puerto Rican? Are you... And, and, and my son's response to that was, why does it even matter? Why, why, why is that an issue? I'm me. We're speaking with the author of the book, Warrior Rising, How Four Men Helped a Boy on His Journey to Manhood. Our guest is Marianne Howland. Marianne, you have a chapter in your book that speaks about this identity thing. After the six years of mentoring from the four men where the book ends is where my son has arrived at this moment because of the valuable foundation that has been built with the power of 
or what I call his collective dad. We each travel a different path on our own individual journey to maturity, to reach the pinnacle of clarity in our mission and purpose in life. The amount of time it takes to get there differs for each and every one of us. On the day of Max's high school graduation, when he was 19 years old with diploma in hand, the mentors all agreed, now the real mentoring begins. After six years of fathering, brothering, friending, and loving, they have all done that he can be the hero he wants to be. Now more than ever, you have to always be mindful of your choices and your time. They both have limits. When either one is wasted or invested poorly, it can limit your possibilities, Uncle Chris advised Max. With that diploma comes more responsibility. There's still a lot to learn. You must still be a student of life. Uncle Jay underscored that message, focusing in on Max's Achilles heel when it came to taking care of business. Be careful of spending too many hours in chat rooms or just watching videos. That is not the best use of your time. If you are serious about your career and are firm in your commitment to your desire to change the world, then think about and do what you need to get there. I have built my financial practice into a successful business, and I'm still investing much of my time learning all I can to be better. Learning and seeking knowledge are things you should be doing every day for the rest of your life. Max enjoyed the celebration and all the back padding and attention, but underneath it all, he felt the weight of his future in front of him, and it was scary. After the festivities, after everyone had left to return home, knowing him as I do, I sensed that something was wrong. I sat down with Max for one of our mother-son check-ins. So what's up? I asked him. I'm not ready yet. What do you mean? I plan to go to LA next year and I need to take care of a few things. I need to work on me. I don't want to get a job right now. Not, not here in this city. It's not who I am. When I get a job, I want it to be what I want to do. I'll get a job when I get to LA because that's where I need to be, he explained. I felt he was preparing me for his gap year. I listened carefully since I knew I had to be mindful of whether it was thoughtful strategy or just fear talking. His words make me take stock of my son in a way that I never had. Max was all grown up. As I watched him talk, taking in the full extent of the man in front of me with mustache and goatee, his legs stretched out in front of him, I was suddenly aware of how grown up and mature he has become. Warrior Rising, how four men helped a boy on his journey to manhood. When we come back, more with our guest, Marianne Howard. Trying to make it real compared to what... We're back here on the Janice Adams Show, speaking with our guest, Marianne Howland. She is the author of Warrior Rising, How Four Men Helped a Boy on This Journey to Manhood. Marianne, tell us about your family. So I have um, three brothers and a sister. We were of the era that benefited from the civil rights movement. Um, you know, we were born at a time when, as you you may remember, and so many of your listeners will remember that a new woke America, if you will, at that moment, there were scholarships, there was affirmative action was, you know, initiated. So for that translated into, I 
got I had a full ride all through high school and 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 college best universities as did my brothers where did you go I went to Boston University got a school of communications and um my um one of my brothers Stephen went to uh, Columbia University then went to Case Western Reserve Law School um became a partner in the largest uh black law firm in Ohio before until he passed away and then um, I have another, my brother, that's the mentor, who is a engineer, rose to the highest ranks at um, and within his corporation until he uh, uh, finally became a consultant and wor- works in the energy space. And then another brother that went to the military, but then um, came back, it was the draft in the, out of the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. and then came back, started, began working for the IRS, and then succeeded to become like, you know, regional manager, you know, big, you know, very successful in his career until he retired about seven or eight years ago. And then my younger sister, um, who graduated from Maryland University, University of Maryland, um, went on to become a um, executive in the public publishing industry at Scholastic and Harcourt. So five of us all had opportunities to go through college, pursue successful careers professionally, and then I'm I'm the one, um, you know, after working in corporate America for many years, opted to go start my own business and um, went that route and built Ibis Communications, which has been absolutely the joy, you know, uh, the joy of my life and, and has been um, a great learning experience. And my mom and dad are just, you know, we're just hardworking black people. You know, my father was a senior budget analyst for the city of Cleveland and, um, you know, underpaid, undervalued, but that's it. But, but a genius at his job and, and the city knew it. And so they did every, you know, they would do just enough to keep him, but it wasn't really enough for him to take care of five kids. Mm -hmm. Right. So my mom also worked. My mom was amazing. She just passed away last August. God bless her. She was a um, secretary and her, she could type 150 words per minute error free. And she knew shorthand and could do, so she could do transcribe shorthand and like 80 words per minute flawless and that beautiful. She's an artist too. So everything she did was beautiful. Right. And, and her creativity, she's also a writer. So she spent, I watched my mom as in, both of my mom and dad were also entrepreneurs. So they both worked as jobs and were, were entrepreneurs. So my father, besides being an accountant for the city, was also a bookkeeper for local black owned businesses. And my mom, though she worked for um, foundations and she would be like the executive secretary of some head of a foundation, she would also do um, typing projects for the students of Case Western Reserve University. So I remember coming home many days from school as a kid and there would be a box waiting in front of the door with with um, handwritten transcript of a of a thesis and my mom would take it on her Smith Corona with no we didn't have whiteout, right? So she's sitting there with a carbon paper and she would not only type their manuscripts but she could edit. Oh wow. So there are many there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students who graduated from the school with the help of my mom who would turn their thesis into, you know, <laughs> into right. a thesis. Right. right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. She, 
so she so that so she made money doing that as well and so i came from an enterprising family that was that and blessed with i'm i'm a perfect mix of my mom and dad so my father whose iq was like 150 i mean he's a genius literally and he had a real money you know that 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 um sense of being able to manage money and and um and and ability to like you know logistically think about logistics and that kind of a mind and then my mother is a creative she's a writer she's an artist you know so i, I got the perfect you know uh mix of both of their um not only their gene the gene pool mix but also watching and growing up with this intentionality around purpose and and you know the importance of you know planning and taking care of family and you know the economics of you know living and you know what i mean and being you know not distracted by you know just you know idle there was no idle time everything every time was all of it was you know planned and thoughtful and structured we had lots of family time my father was an excellent he really oh my god every single saturday of our lives all the kids he took all of us we would go to the beach, to Euclid Beach Amusement Park, uh, to the skate rink, bowling. As a matter of fact, bowling was so much a part of her life. My father was a bowling instructor that when I was 13, no, I was 12. I was 12. I, won a, I went to New York to bowl in what was called the Junior Olympics as a bowler. Oh, that, wow. At, at 12 years old, I was averaging, what was my average, like 128 or something like that? So was you know so the 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 idea of family of and my mom she was not she wasn't the type that would take us out to go you know outside and have all these extracurricular activities my mother would have us in the house and we would do during the winter months and do board games so we had monopoly risk life you know checkers we th this was the the dining room table would turn into like the family game room and all of us would play all these games with such intensity, you would think that it was like the NFL or something because everybody was so serious about their game plan, coming to the game and winning. <laughs> so this was, this was, there was a lot of, um, you know, really, you know, beautiful moments around, you know, getting to learn sharing and 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 the accountability because inside of all of that especially the time with my dad there was the idea of you know there were chores and you had to finish your chores and 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 chores meant even you know when we went out for the day because we're going out either way and you and you i don't care what you did wrong you're coming because he thought it was more important that we have this time together and so when you had the time together it might mean that if you did something that you need to be punished for that if the rest of us got all, you know, the extra $2 or whatever, you only got a dollar. You know what I mean? Whatever was okay. he found a way to but work. the priority it. was the family being together. Exactly. That was priority. So he wasn't going to, you never, nobody ever got left behind, but, but you can, it was going to impact the experience of the day in terms of, um, you know, what, what extra perks you got or whatever. The, and crea always, the creativity of parenthood can be really <laughs> amazing. <laughs> it really works. So all that to say, though, you know, I, I came from a, you know, I, you know, I was I etched into the, 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 the imprint of 
who I would later become was one, this work ethic, um, the, the value of family. Um, you know, my mom was a phenomenal cook. I, because she did all those things, I, I'm, I'm the oldest girl. And so I had, um, she taught me young, like seven or eight years old, I was already cooking. You know, so she had me in the kitchen. I started learning, you know, my mom's, cook, you know, cooking skills early on. And, and so, and, and she relied upon that. So I became, you know, when she, by the time I was 12, she knew I could go prepare dinner for the family. So what you know? is your favorite thing to make? My favorite thing to make, cookies. Matter of fact, Food Network gave me an award for the best cookies recipe. Yes, yes, ma'am. So it's official. <laughs> I am the cookie queen. Don't mess with Mary Ann's cookies. Well, I wish I could have some virtual ones right now. <laughs> that is fabulous. Mary Ann, how do you transition from that kind of family? How do you take that family wealth and create IBIS communications? And what does IBIS mean? Janice, you ask such great questions. You are so smart. So um, IBIS communications actually evolved on its own. It was organic. It wasn't as if I woke up one day and went, I'm going to start an agency. That's not what happened. Okay. What happened is I had joined the corporate world and had, um, I, was, I was good at my job. And I started, you know, making huge milestones and, you know, I, I, I it, you know, started a job at entry level and within four years became international copy manager at Timing and was, you know, had money, fortune, people discover Sports Illustrated and, and Life magazines as, as my clients and, and we're winning awards. So, but one of the things that I also realized in the corporate world is that there are people with biases and um, microaggressions and not my best interest at heart and all kind of racism, even though, I, you know, I was, this was affirmative action period, that did not mean that there weren't people who didn't like it. So I, I, I could see that. And I'm not the kind of person that I wasn't interested after four years of achieving success and being an overachiever and having the genes that I had, um, I made the decision that I did not, I didn't fit into corporate America. I cannot play this game. And if, and if, and if I'm willing to, you know, put in the kind of hours that I'm investing in this company, why not invest those hours in my own, in myself and, and see how that yields. And with no obligations at that point, other than rent, um, I thought I took the step to just leave corporate America and start my freelance business as a writer, which I love to do and was encouraged by people like Janice Adams. So as I began to write and make a lot of money at it, it got to the point where I went, okay, there's no turning back. This is clearly the trajectory that I need to be on. And so, and as I, because I've got, a design. I've got, you know, my mom's creative and design sense and, you know, artistic ability. I, I could, the, the design aspect of our business, as you know, is a part of advertising. There's the copy and then there's design. Um, my clients, 
began asking me, you know, well, can you, can you, besides the writing, can you get a designer? Can you work with a designer? And, and it, it grew into this business of managing creative teams to, to, to service our clients. So it grew on demand, not because I set out saying, I'm going to build an agency. I'm just good at what I do. I'm good at managing teams. And I, I had this, this ability to be able to, you know, write and be creative director, if you will. And then I had my, my father's business sense. Yeah. I knew numbers. So it just all, I, it, it just all came together. And then next thing you know, it's a business. And then um, along the way, I had um, a, a client in New York, Japanese clients. And there was a project where we were going to name a company. And um, in that naming process, the IBIS came up as well as some other options. And in the, in the discovery of IBIS and what it meant and, you know, the imagery, that's when I learned that it was the sacred bird of the Nile and the symbol of the wisdom and knowledge representing the God thought. And the idea that it's a bird with wings that soar. It was just, it just, I I knew that if this company did not choose that name, I was going to take it. So, um, because it was a way to connect to the motherland. It represented, you know, the the, um, thought leadership, which is kind of the space that I have always lived in or wanted to live in or, or prepared myself to grow in. And then um, the idea of the bird and soaring and in a, a perspective, the global perspective, all of those things kind of just connected for me. And um, so I put it on the shelf back then because at that point, you know, I was a freelancer, you know, was I'm organizing teams, but we weren't a company yet, if you will. And so um, it wasn't until I got to Nashville and uh, and then you know, decided, you know what, I'm ready to take that next step and, and put this, you know, wrap this into a, a corporate entity, if you will. And that's when it became Ibis Communications. So that's where the name comes from. And, and I've just, it's not only inspiration, but it kind of is a good, it was a good omen. Now it has given you an international profile and the wherewithal within your career to be able to introduce your son to Barack Obama. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Well, you know, that is um, divine providence. And, uh, and also a, a, a great network. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, my, over the years, what has happened is um, in, in the work that we do, with Ibis Communications and our clients are uh, Fortune 100, you know, companies. And as the world became more global centric, this is back in like the mid 2000s when everything, all the all mark all the professional titles that corporations suddenly had a G in front of them. It was a you know global diversity officer, global marketing officer, global this, global that, right? Yeah. But all these people were thrust into these new roles, and many of them like deer in headlights. We're kind of trying to fi- all figure it out because this is new for everyone, which led to the idea of creating the Global Diversity Leadership Exchange, which is an extension of Ibis Communications, which is a forum for C-suite level executives 
who are on the front lines of driving diversity and inclusion in markets around the world. And it's a peer-to-peer -peer opportunity to present not necessarily best practices, but breakthroughs. And to be open and honest and roll up the sleeves and, and, and figure out how do we get this done together. At this point in time, this COVID moment, this George Floyd and too many police murders of black people moment, how do you work with those people on this topic? Well, it's really new topic. Janice. So it's, it's, and, and one of the first things that happened was um, right after the George Floyd incident, when every, the, America was shocked and horrified by a snuff film, basically, um, I got calls from many men, white men, who were um, the C-suite level executives company first asking me, oh my God, Marion, how are you? Which was, which was interesting. That, as a matter of fact, it was that, that's never happened in my life. And the first phone call when from a white man that asked me that, I immediately, I just burst into tears because, and I let him have it because I, I was raw. So I said to him, "You're a white man. You have to fix this." And then I and I immediately said, "You know, since the beginning of this country." that began with genocide of a population of people and then enslaving people that you went over to another country and took mothers and fathers and children and brought them over here and then treated them as chattel. And, you know, and then and went through, I went through the, you know, the civil rights era and the, you know, the Jim Crow. And, and I said, this is all, you created this mess. And, and we are now all walking around you know, suffering from PTSD. And in addition to that, you know, it's relentless. I said, the only way that this is going to change is that y'all have to fix this. And so, and I, so at the end of this conversation, and I kind of felt bad for him at the end because I've just really let it out, you know, um, he said, you know, I, I was apologizing to him for just, you know, for 20 minutes, I'm giving it to him. He said, this is hard to hear but we need to hear it. And, and so, and then he, he sort of gave me permission. And so the following calls, I, I was very upfront and it led to me having another conversation with another CEO where, who called me and I said to him, you need to, y'all need to go create a white man's manifesto. I said, and then it means, means it be a new social contract with African-Americans and every other group that you've exploited that allows, you know, to alleviate the, the, the problems that we're having in our community today. It's time for reparations and y'all just going to have to own it. And, um, you know, or, or this is, this is this, this situation that's been created is just going to get exacerbated. And I, I think from a corporate perspective, you have to understand that I don't care what level executive you know, at your company, I don't care if you just promoted somebody to be, you know, uh, you know, COO as a person of color, they're coming to work every day traumatized. I said, go ask that black COO, have they ever been pulled over by police? Go ask them what they have, they had to have the talk with their son. Go ask them, you know, what that journey has been like. And so now the conversation being had and what I've been called upon to do in many 
I'm doing this tomorrow. I have a call with Equitable and the CEO and the COO is on the call with a hundred of their employees to talk about this issue. And besides the storytelling, and there's, you know, there's lots of stories and sharing that, you know, finally we get to, you know, talk about those things that we've been keeping inside all these years. And Mm -hmm. there needs to be action. You know, there needs to be steps taken to really, you know, create the equity, the justice, socially, economically, environmentally, that needs to be happening in our communities. That has to be now. But it also, I think that it is on our part as people of color and the marginalized communities. When we're sharing our stories, I'm, I'm encouraging people to, st- to also share your solutions. And what I'm, sh- what I'm also telling to corporate America is you are no longer allowed to dismiss our solutions. Look where we are now. Clearly, especially the white patriarchy, will be quick to take ownership of something and, oh, we'll fix this, we got this. Well, you know, like you have the companies that will step up and go, oh, we're going to billion dollars to minority-owned businesses. Okay, that's well and good, but that's not really solving the problem. And the people who are expert in the solution are the people who have been suffering from this for 400 plus years. So please listen to us. We'll tell you, give us the keys, let us drive now. We got this, you know? So don't dismiss and also invest because we we have the solutions. And as that woman said, we're not about revenge. We just want some equality. Not about revenge, just equality. And I wanted my son to be able to enjoy this with me because what I recognize for him as a black man in the United States and as a person with a disability, that his best option might not be here. His best option as a black man might be in another country that had you know, different attitudes. Mm-hmm. His best opportunity as a person with disabilities might be in another country that has better health care. So that those kind of that thought that was really important for him to feel comfortable understanding that people are people and that your world is bigger than the US. My son has four mentors. But there are other men who played significant roles in mentoring moments. And in the book The Lessons Learned, there are about 14 of them and one of them is called Greatness Comes from the Heart. And it's about how you show up for people. And so when my son, Max, was 14, he had a chance to meet Barack Obama at an event held in Chicago about a month before he was elected into office for the first time. And so I'm going to read you an excerpt that describes this remarkable, intimate moment that gave Max a glimpse of what it means to be great. As the time came near for his appearance, people began gravitating to the back of the room to line up on the red carpet. Max could not wait on the line with me for our turn to meet Barack since he could not stand for longer than a few minutes. We decided that when I was next in line, I would signal Max to rise to meet me where Barack stood waiting for us to join him for a photo. From where Max sat was a straight line of not more than 12 feet from the target. The handlers were wrangling purses, cameras, anything in your hand to expedite the photo taking process and to keep the Senator on schedule for the evening. On cue from staffers, each individual or couple was signaled to walk, shake hands, pose, snap, exit, and then you heard next. The line moved fairly quickly. Finally, it was our turn. 
As I walked toward Barack, I signaled to Max to meet me. As Max approached, Barack paused to take in the full figure of the young man walking toward him. As he waited for Max to make his way, he signaled the handlers to pause the photo procession, and then he leaned in. As he took Max's extended hand in his firm grip, he asked, what's your name, young man? After Max told him his name, while still holding his hand, Max's very next words were, I really admire you for being such a great father to Sasha and Malia. I was just as taken aback as Barack was, and it was visible to everyone within view of the two that something special had just happened when Barack shifted into a completely different manner from genuine politeness to genuine interest. In other words, he got real. Barack and Max began a kind of tete-a-tete. How old are you, he asked. Max told him and Barack responded, you know, you kind of looked like me when I was 14. I had locks just like yours. Max couldn't stop smiling, beaming up at him while I was trying to imagine Barack with locks. <laughs> the two of them connected with light man to younger man banter about school and family. The last question Barack asked him was, tell me young man, what kind of change would you like to see? Max paused for a second, brow furrowed, and then responded, someone like you as president, you're kind of cool. Barack laughed and said, well, I'm working on that and I appreciate your support. At that moment, I took the opportunity to let Barack know that Max had brought something for him. Oh yeah, where is it, Barack said, signaling to the handlers to bring me my purse. In it, I had put a copy of Open Roads Hawaii with kids by Rachel Jackson Christmas, a dear friend. I have brought it just in case because you never know. <laughs> Max and I are contributing researchers to this island travel guide. Max provided input for reviews of the children's clubs and activities, so his name is mentioned in it. Earlier that day, I made sure that Max had autographed it for Barack. Max showed him the book and guided Barack to the page with his handwritten note that said, good luck, I hope you become president. Barack grinned broadly and said, thank you, Max. I'm gonna share it with Sasha and Malia. We'll use it next time we go to Hawaii. I felt like dropping a hula dance right then. I was never so glad that I had thought to grab a copy of the book and get Max to sign it and bring it with us just in case, because you never know when you're going to meet the next president of the United States. Barack thanked him for the book and they shook hands again. By now, the handlers were noticeably perplexed as they stood by looking at their watches impatiently. It was time to pose, snap, exit, and next. And then there was the blueberry story. To hear more of my interview with Marianne Howland, mother of Max, founder of Ibis Communications, author of Warrior Rising, How Four Men Helped a Boy on His Journey to Manhood, creator of blackmitzvah.org, visit my website, janusadams.com. My thanks to Marianne and to you for joining us today on the Janice Adams Show. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved. Trying to make it real compared to what...